0: Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at three verses today. It's Philippians 3 verse 20, verse 21, and then chapter 4 verse 1. So this is a little bit different because Paul's thought really doesn't end at the end of chapter 3. It goes over to the first verse of chapter 4. So we're going to include that in our study today. And I'm going to call our message today, Eagerly Waiting for Jesus. That's the title. Eagerly Waiting. Waiting for Jesus. Mm. Let's go to the Lord. Lord God, we come before you in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who alone possesses. Life and immortality. Lord Jesus, would you shed abroad in our hearts the truth of your word? Bring us under its sway and its power. May we revel in the truths that are revealed to us. May we eagerly wait for your coming again. So help us to see and to understand and to follow you more clearly, Lord, as fully devoted followers of yourself, of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we come to our text today, Philippians 3, verse 20, Paul has been urging the Philippians and us, by application, to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Pressing on towards the goal. Now, what is the goal that we're supposed to be pressing on towards? It's Christ's likeness We know that because in verse 12, he says, But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And we know that Jesus Christ laid hold of Paul to conform him into his own image. To sanctify him and make him holy. And so, Paul has been urging the Philippians to press on just like he's been pressing on. So that he might be made into the, or they might be made into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so our pursuit in the Christian life is to be conformed to Christ's image. That's our pursuit. And to that end, we press on, which means that we strain every nerve. We exert all of our effort and all of our diligence in the Christian life to move forward in this life of faith in Jesus Christ, to be conformed to his image. Now, in our pursuit of that goal... It's important to imitate good examples and shun bad examples. And that's why we had verses 17 to 19 included in this. Because Paul says in 17, Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So there are good examples in the Christian life, like Paul's, and people who walked according to the pattern that they had in Paul, like Epaphroditus and Timothy and other disciples that Paul had made. We are to join in following those examples, but then we're to shun other examples, like verse 18 and 19. He mentions the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. We are to shun those examples, because those examples will just help us to go further and further away from Christ. Well, that brings us to verse 20 where Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. There's a contrast. These enemies of the cross of Christ set their minds on earthly things, but our citizenship, unlike theirs, is in heaven. They have an earthly citizenship. We have a heavenly citizenship. Now, try to imagine if you are a citizen of the United States, but you are spending some time in Africa. You're going there for a visit, and so you take a trip there. Uh, Because because your mind is so defaulted towards American ways, whenever you go to another country, you're going to be comparing everything you see and experience by what you already know from the the US. So, the food that you eat when you get there, the friendliness or non-friendliness of the people, the weather, the kinds of animals that they have in that country, the modes of transportation, everything that you experience when you're in Africa, you're going to be comparing to what you already know because your real home is not there, your real home is here and you are very aware of what life is like here, so when you go there you're comparing and you're evaluating everything in light of that. That's a little bit like what it's like for us as Christians. We are citizens of heaven. Heavenly citizenship, that's our true home. We are living here temporarily. We're on leave, we're on a visit, but it's only a temporary visit. And we're gonna be going back to heaven, to our true home fairly shortly, not too many years from now. And so our mind, just like the, the mind of the US citizen in Africa, needs to be on heavenly things. Remember, he tells us in verse 19 that the enemies of the cross set their minds on earthly things, but friends of the cross set their minds on heavenly things. And that's why Paul says in Colossians 3.1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. So there is this heavenly mindedness that all Christians are to pursue. Of course we live in this world and we have to have our mind set to one degree on the things of the world. But yet he wants us to be purposely and deliberately focusing our minds on the things above. The things of heaven. Because we have a heavenly citizenship. And what exactly, if we were to pinpoint what we are to set our minds on, what would that be? Well, look at verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to set our minds on Christ above everything else. He is the one that we are to set it on because we're eagerly waiting for him to return. So the citizens of heaven love their king. It's like an ambassador to another country. If you're an ambassador from the U.S. to Spain, let's say, you are an official representative of the United States in a foreign country. Well, that's what we're like here. We live in this world. We're an official representative of God living in this world, representing the values of God, the laws of God, the will of God in this country. So when people look at our lives, they should see something of heaven in our life because that's who we represent. We represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we're away being an ambassador, our king, from or our president, has told us that he's going to make a personal visit to that country. He's going to see us, and he's going to bring us personally back to be with him in our own home country. That's what it means when the Lord Jesus has promised that he's going to come and receive us to himself. He's going to come. And so that what is what ought to absorb our minds and our hearts, because Paul says... From which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning we want to meditate on the second coming of Jesus Christ. Which is good because I I can't remember in our recent preaching series where that's been a topic of discussion. But here it is in the word of God. So let's let's take some time and meditate on the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the way I'm going to organize my thoughts this morning is in three questions. Number one, who are we waiting for? Two, what will he do when he comes? And three, what must we do until he comes? Who are we waiting for? What will he do when he comes? And what must we do until he comes? Okay, so who are we waiting for? Verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. From which, from heaven, also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for a person. And not just any person. I've heard a lot of people tell me, or even on TV shows, you know, you, you, you hear people talk about heaven and yeah, I can't wait to go to heaven. Well, why? Why do you want to go there? Well, because grandma's there, or grandpa, or husband, or wife, or child, or rover, or spot or midnight you know a dog or a cat So they're all there so that's why I want to go to heaven and they've missed the point completely the the person who knows Jesus wants to go to heaven because Jesus is there they want to be with their Savior the Lord Jesus Christ that's why and if someone doesn't have that as the most important reason why they want to go to heaven I question whether they even know Jesus because when you come to know Jesus he becomes the greatest treasure in your life more than any earthly person More than any animal that you have loved, he he is the one that you love supremely. And that's what Paul says. We eagerly wait, not to see grandma, we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Other people want to go to heaven because they think, well in heaven I'm not going to suffer anymore. And they're suffering now. And that's true. And that's a wonderful blessing of heaven, isn't it? That we're not going to suffer in heaven. Pain will be no more. We're not, there will be no more mourning or crying or pain or death. That's all very true and wonderful. But that's not the most wonderful thing about heaven. The most wonderful thing is we're going to see our Savior face to face. Fall at his feet. Take our crown off that he gave us. Throw it at his feet and sing hallelujah to the Lord. That's going to be the most wonderful thing about heaven. What about Paul? What was the most wonderful thing for him? Well, Philippians 1.21, Paul says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then two verses later he says, But I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart, that means to die, and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Why was it very much better for Paul to die? Why did he really feel that way? Because he would be with Christ. And that made, ev- that made everything to Paul. If he could be with Christ, that made it much better to leave than to stay. Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure. He's the greatest treasure. Much more than mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, son, daughter. He, he is the treasure of heaven. So who are we waiting for? We're waiting for a person. And he's identified as a savior. Now I want you to notice that Jesus is not just a past Savior. He says, we're eagerly waiting for this Savior who will come. Not just one that he did come, but one who will come in the future, a future Savior. See, Jesus saved my soul when he died for me on the cross, but he's going to save my body when he returns from me one day. He's going to redeem the whole person. Jesus is not just a past Savior, he's also a present Savior, and he's also a future Savior. Because, see, salvation is past, present, and future. And we oftentimes make the mistake of looking only at salvation as something that happened in the past. Jesus Christ saved me from the penalty of my sins. Gloriously true. But it's only two-thirds of the truth. He also is presently saving me from the power of sin and He will one day save me from the penalty of sin. He has saved my soul. He's going to save and redeem my body when He comes again. He justified me when I believed on Him. He is sanctifying me as I trust Him day to day and He will one day glorify me. He's a complete Savior of the entire person. And His salvation runs all the way through history. So we're looking forward to a Savior, not just one that once saved me, but one that will save my body, as well as my soul. Now not only are we waiting for a Savior, we're waiting for the Lord. The Lord. The Lord of Heaven. The King of Heaven. This reminds me of Revelation chapter 19, where we read about, symbolically, we read about the second coming of our Lord Jesus. I'm gonna, it's a, a lengthy passage, but I want to read it to you. It's Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. John writes, And I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, his own blood, His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. That's you and me. That's people who have died in the Lord and gone on to be with him. They're coming back with Christ. Riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, which is the righteousness of the saints. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword. You know what that is, don't we? The Word of God. So that with it he may strike down the nations. So he's coming back to judge and to execute vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. This is not gentle Jesus this time. This is a warrior lion king coming back to execute wrath on his enemies and to reward his faithful followers. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We eagerly wait, not just a savior, church. We wait for the Lord. The Lord of lords. The King of kings. See, Jesus is not only the Lord of heaven. Jesus right now is also the Lord of earth. He said in Matthew 28:18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He possesses all authority everywhere without the, within the universe. And because he's Lord of Lords and King of Kings, that means that Jesus Christ is the Lord of Alexander the Great and Caesar Nero. He's the Lord of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Roosevelt, Reagan, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, Mussolini, Stalin, Hitler, Putin, and we could go on and on and on. And mention anybody who has ever lived. Jesus is their Lord. And one day they will acknowledge that. If they don't acknowledge it before they die. He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Every knee is going to bow. Before the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're eagerly waiting for a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. The word Jesus. It means Jehovah is salvation. The word Christ means the Anointed One. Put them together. Jesus is the Anointed One from Heaven who is Jehovah bringing salvation to sinners. That's the one we're waiting for. The Savior. The infinite Jehovah clothing himself with the flesh of a man, a human being, dying on behalf of other sinners, rising again triumphantly from the dead, ascending back to heaven. He is the anointed one, the Messiah who was promised for hundreds of years and finally came on the scene bringing God's will to pass. And now we're waiting for that same one who came one day. We're waiting for him to come back again. That's the answer to our first question. Who are we waiting for? We're waiting for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What will we do when He comes? Well, two things. I, I, I said that wrong. Not what will we do. What will He do when He comes? And we have the answer in verse 20 and 21. Verse 21 says, Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory? That's the very first thing He's going to do. He's going to transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. Now our bodies right now are humble. What Paul means by that is they're frail, they're weak, they sometimes get sick. Oftentimes they get sick, they develop diseases, they age, the skin wrinkles, the hair falls out or turns gray, Uh, we stoop over, we lose our energy, That's all the process of aging. That means our bodies are humble. But Jesus Christ doesn't have a humble body today. Jesus Christ today has a glorious body. In fact it says here our humble body is going to be transformed into conformity with the body of His glory. He's got a glorious body and our humble body is going to be transformed into conformity with a glorious body. We call that glorification. Or being glorified. It's the final stage of this salvation process. We've already been justified. We are being sanctified. We will be glorified. And our body is going to be transformed. Our soul has already been redeemed. And it is in the process of being saved from sin and the power of sin. But one day even the body is going to be transformed so that it is It is in conformity now with this transformed soul. This soul that's been redeemed and been declared righteous by the blood of Christ. Now, this body is in cooperation with that, in harmony with that that very soul. So, Jesus possesses a body of glory. Jesus is never going to grow old, He's never going to get weary. He's never going to age, he's never going to get sick, he's never going to die, and your body will have the same properties that Jesus' body has. Now, our text doesn't say that God's going to create a brand new body out of nothing and give it to us, does it? It says he's going to transform our humble body and conform that humble body to the body of Jesus' glory. So there is some continuity between the body you have now and the body you're going to have then. I don't completely understand how this works. I'll just confess that. But I know that he's not going to, poof, make make a new body and give it to you and then unite your soul to it. This says he's going to transform, which means he's going to take what we have presently and he's going to make it different. He's going to make it uh, immortal, just like his own. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verse 42 to 44, the Apostle Paul is talking about these new bodies that God is going to give us. Listen to what he says. He says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it's raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now think about the words that Paul uses there to describe the kind of body you're going to have. Imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. You say, what's a spiritual body? I think that means a body that is always inclined to do the will of God. The will of the Spirit of God. It's a spiritual body rather than just carnal and fleshly. Prone to the temptations of the flesh. This is a spiritual body prone to do the will of God in all situations. So it's imperishable. That means it'll never die. It'll never perish. It's not like a tomato that if you leave out for two weeks turns green and rancid and you throw it away. It's not like that. It's a body that will never perish. It's also a glorious body. Not a weak, frail, aging body. This is a body that's gonna be glorious just like Jesus' body. It's gonna be powerful. I'm not sure exactly how we're gonna exercise power with these bodies. It'll be interesting to find out. But it's also a spiritual body. Can you imagine having a body that doesn't feel the impulses to sin? Try to imagine that. What that would be like to have a body that never wants to do wrong never wants to overeat or get drunk or take drugs or uh, have sex with the person you're not married to or things like that. This is a body that is completely free of temptations. So that's the very first thing he's going to do when he comes. He's going to transform our humble bodies. Second thing he's going to do is subject all things to himself. Because he says here, he's going to Make this body transformed by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So, not only is he going to transform our bodies, he's going to subject everything else in this world to himself. Now that tells us that everything is not subjected to himself right now. There's rebellion going on in his creation. If everything was perfectly obedient to his will, there would be no reason for him to subject all things to himself. Because it already would be. But when he comes, that's what he's going to do. There's rebellion today against the throne rights of Jesus Christ the King. It hasn't always been this way. There was a time before sin was introduced into this universe when there was only one will. That was God's will. Only one. But there came a time when one of God's created beings, we call him Satan, asserted his own will against God's will. In Isaiah chapter 14 it talks about the king of Babylon. But many, have, many scholars have speculated that perhaps behind this king of Babylon there is a reference to Satan because there are some things said there that could only be said of an angelic creature. I'll just read it to you. He says, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. The stars of God usually is a reference to angels. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Now this, if this is a reference to Satan, we see what's happening here is that Satan is asserting his will. I will, five times. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne. I will sit on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So there was at one time only God's will and all created things bowed before that and carried it out. And now there's rebellion within the universe. And Satan says, no, I'm not going to do your will, God. I'm going to do my will. I will do this, I will do that. And then what does Satan do in the garden of Eden? He tempts Eve and the man to assert their own will and to do something that God has prohibited, which is to eat of the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they go ahead and follow him in this rebellion. And now man has... A will opposed to the will of God. And so there's no longer one single will in the universe. Today, there is every man does what is right in his own eyes, every man does his own will. But there's coming a day when Jesus Christ returns where he's going to put down that rebellion. He's going to take all of those his enemies and he's going to cast them into the lake of fire. He's going to punish his enemies. And He's going to reward His faithful followers. His enemies will be confined to hell. And all of His friends, His disciples, His church, they are going to be with Him. Worshiping and serving Him forever. And within His people, there will again only be one will. Never again is there going to be every man doing what is right in his own eyes. Every man will be doing right in God's eyes. So he's going to subject all things. His his enemies, he's going to subject them. And his friends, they're already subjected, but now they're going to be perfectly subjected to him. In fact, Paul has already told us in this very book, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, he says there, For this reason also God highly exalted Jesus Christ and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what's going to happen when he returns. Every knee's going to bow. Every knee's going to confess. Now how will Jesus Christ accomplish this? That's a tall order to subject all things to himself. How's he going to do it? Well he's going to do it By the exertion of the power that he has. Jesus Christ is God. As God he has all power. He's omnipotent. There is nothing that is his will that he cannot do. Now there are some things that Jesus Christ can't do. But it's only because they're not part of his will. He can't. He can no longer die. He died once as a man. He can't die anymore. That's not part of his will. He can't lie, sin, because he's holy. His nature. His nature is to be holy and to do righteousness. So whatever is part of the will of Christ, Christ can accomplish. And this is the Father's will. It's the Father's will that the whole creation be subjected to him. And this is not just... Um, talking about men, this is also talking about the world. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Why is creation anxiously waiting for the sons of God, that's you and me, to be revealed before the rest of the world? Right now the world doesn't know who are the sons of God. One day they're going to be revealed when Christ returns. Why is creation waiting so anxiously for that? For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So the creation was subjected to futility when sin entered the world. The creation, the rest of the world, has been subjected to sin. That's why animals and plants get sick and die. But he says, In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So that's what's going to happen to creation. When the sons of God are revealed, the creation... Is going to be set free from its slavery to corruption which is in right now and it's going to be set free into the freedom of the glory of the children of God for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now all of creation is groaning and suffering but one day the suffering and the groaning will be over and creation will be set free from the effects of sin that have, have come into this world so When Christ comes, he's going to subject the world, nature, plants, animals, demons, angels, people, everything will be subjected to himself once again. In 2 Peter 3.13, Peter says, But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So there's coming a new world, a perfect world. A righteous world. A sinless world. And Jesus is going to bring that world into existence by the exertion of his power. All power. Third question. What must we do until he comes? That's chapter 4 verse 1 of Philippians. Therefore my beloved brethren whom I long to see my joy and crown. In this way stand firm in the Lord my beloved. It's almost difficult to find the exhortation in verse 1 because it's crowded out by so many other endearing, loving expressions that Paul heaps upon one upon another. In other words, he says, My beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, my beloved. He, these things are a flood of Expressions of love and tenderness that he has for the Philippian church. So we might even miss his point. But his point in verse four, or chapter four, verse one, is stand firm in the Lord. That's the exhortation. I, I think all those endearing expressions occurred to Paul naturally as he wrote this letter because he had such a loving and tender heart for this church. I don't think this is made up or this is manufactured in any way. They just flowed out of his heart because he loved this church so much. Not only did he weep at the thought of the enemies of the cross of Christ damaging the church, but he was also filled with love and affection when he thought of the Philippian believers themselves. But what was Paul's one great desire for this church until Jesus Christ returned? It was that they would stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm. So what did he mean by that? When he says stand firm in the Lord, what exactly do you think Paul was thinking about? Stand firm. I think he meant at least three things. Number one, he meant that they must stand firm against persecution. Because if you go back to Philippians chapter 1... You're going to see in the context of this letter that that was one thing that was taking place there with the Philippian believers. Go back to chapter 1 verse 27. He writes, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm, there's our phrase, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now notice this, in no way alarmed by your opponents. So there were opponents to the church in Philippi. He says, that's a sign of destruction for them, but it's a sign of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So suffering because of these opponents was part of the life of the church. Suffering and persecution. And he says in verse 30, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Think about the words Paul uses. Opponents, suffering, and conflict. They were being persecuted. They were facing persecution. And so Paul says, stand firm in the Lord. To stand firm means you don't give ground. If you are a soldier in an army and the other... The enemy army is coming against you. To stand firm means you don't turn around and run, right? You stay where you're at and you hold your ground and you refuse to give an inch of ground that you've got. That's what Paul is telling the church to do. Don't give any ground to the devil. He's your enemy. He's your opponent. And when people persecute you because of your faith in Jesus Christ, don't throw in the towel and say, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for the stress and the pain and the suffering that goes along with being a Christian. Forget it. I'm out. No, stand firm against that persecution. Don't let that persecution cause you to turn around and walk the other way. Remember Jesus said in the book of Revelation, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Well, if it even requires your death, you must be willing to die for Jesus Christ. That's probably something that isn't Mentioned too often in American Christianity because we've got such a watered down gospel that we preach here in America. But that's what the Bible says. Jesus said, If a man will follow me, he's got to take up his cross, deny himself, and then follow me. Well, when Jesus took up his cross, where did it lead? To being crucified, to dying. And so the person who is going to follow Jesus may have to, and millions have, down through the last 2,000 years, given their life for Christ. Just read the Fox's Book of Martyrs of the first 300 years of church history. Droves of Christians were killed because they were Christians. And they would not submit themselves or confess that the Caesar was Lord. They confessed that Jesus was Lord and wouldn't worship anyone else. So we have to stand firm against persecution to the very nth degree. And that may require us to give up our lives. We don't know. But we, at least within our hearts, we have to be willing to go there if it's required of us. Second thing, we have to stand firm against false teaching. And I get that out of Philippians chapter 3 because he, Paul has mentioned two sources of false teaching in this chapter. In verse 2, he mentions the Judaizers, not by name, but it's veiled there. He says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Those are the Judaizers. They were saying you had to be circumcised if you're going to be saved. And you had to obey all the law of Moses. So salvation is not simply through Jesus Christ alone by grace, through faith. No, you have to do these works in order to be saved. Get circumcised, keep the law of Moses. So these legalists had come in and were trying to get the church off course. And so when Paul says stand firm, I think he's going back to those false teachers, the Judaizers. And he's saying, you guys need to stand firm against those teaching and not allow the legalists to bring you into bondage again. But there was another kind of false teaching too. And we get that from verses 18 and 19. The enemies of the cross of Christ. They weren't legalists, they were lawless. Whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. These were people who had turned the grace of God into licentiousness. They took their freedom in Christ and ended up being in bondage to their sin. All the while claiming that God's grace is so infinite that it doesn't matter how I live. Because God's grace is going to forgive me and save me anyway. It's a lie. The Bible is very clear. You cannot live and practice sin and expect to go to heaven. It's absolutely not true. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, don't be deceived. Don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. Now the empty words are, it's all good. You can live with your girlfriend. You can commit adultery. You can be a homosexual, practicing homosexual. You can steal and defraud other people. You can lie. You can live like Satan and still go to heaven because you raised your hand at an altar call. You confess Jesus as your savior doesn't matter, my friends. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Those are empty. They have no power. A powerful word is a word that confesses Christ as Savior and then is backed up by a life that matches it. A life of holiness. A life of commitment to Christ to obey Him. So we have to stand firm against the false teaching not only of the legalists who add something to the grace of God but to the lawless ones who subtract from the grace of God. They say you can have God's grace and your life doesn't have to be transformed. It's a lie. If you truly receive the grace of God, your life will be transformed. It's going to be different. There's going to bear new fruit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is going to come forth from your life. So we've got to stand firm against false teaching. And as a church, we need to be aware of this. With the Invention of the internet, I mean even before that there was all kinds of false teaching, but now it's everywhere. Just type in anything you want on Google and you can have all kinds of false teaching. Videos, written documents, sermons, uh, audios, I mean it's everywhere. And we need to know the true from the false. We need to be able to discern what is biblical from what is not biblical. And that's every Christian's job. I mean... As one of the spiritual leaders here, it's my job to try to help you discern truth from error. But you need to be involved in that as well. You need to know your Bible. You can't rely on other people, even your best friend or your parent or your pastors, to know the Bible for you. Each one of you need to be in the Word of God yourself, and you need to know what it says, so that you, for yourself, can discern truth from error. The world has got all kinds of values and ideas, and they slip so easily within the Christian church if we're not aware. I won't go into all those because there's too many, but there's all kinds of things that the world just slips right in. Well, thirdly, we need to stand firm against Satan and his demons. This doesn't come out of the book of Philippians, but it does come out of the book of Ephesians because paul writes in ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 and he's describing here spiritual warfare he says finally be strong in the lord and in the strength of his might put on the full armor of god so that you will be able to stand firm there's our phrase right against the schemes of the devil for our struggle is not against flesh and blood But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm. We need to stand firm against Satan. Satan is going to do his dead level best to try to get you to walk away from Christ. To tempt you. To turn your eyes away from Jesus. He wants to get you enthralled with the world. He wants you to leave the fellowship of the saints. He wants you to let your Bible collect dust. He wants you to be in a place where you're not communing with him any longer. You're not praying. Satan wants to make you inert. Ineffective in the kingdom and you need to stand firm against His influences. When you find the pull to go away from Christ, stand firm. Don't allow yourself to be moved. So those are the three areas that we as a church have to stand firm. Against persecution, against false teaching, and against Satan. So when Satan comes and he tries to get you to move away from that place of victory that you have experienced and to go back into drugs, or alcohol, or gossip, or evil speech, or pride, or whatever else it is, remember how painful the repentance was the first time that that brought you deliverance. Remember how difficult it was for you to mortify those sins. Remember the experience of watching yourself and praying and asking God to cleanse you. Don't give ground to Satan so that you have to repeat that again. Stay where you are. Advance. Don't go backwards. Now, back to Philippians 4.1. What was their motivation to stand firm? Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore. There it is. The word therefore tells you That standing firm is something they would be enabled to do if they believed what Paul had just told them in verse 20 and 21. Because of what I just told you, stand firm. So the motivation and the power to stand firm comes when they remember that Jesus Christ is going to return. When he does, he's going to transform their humble bodies into conformity with the body of his glory. That when he comes, he's going to cause every knee to bow. And every tongue to confess that he's Lord. It's it's this hope that we have. The blessed hope. Our opening scripture. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's going to make all things right when he comes. He's going to bring a perfect world into existence. And so keep that at the forefront of your mind. Set your hope completely on what Christ is going to do when he returns. Be faithful unto death, and He will give you the crown of life. You will inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. These kinds of promises need to fill our hearts and minds, and we need to recall them. When it gets hard to be a Christian, go to the promises of God's Word, and recall them, and read them, and let them fill you with strength again, so that you're like... Attracted like a steel filing to a magnet. The promises are like the magnet. And, and the magnet has this power to draw you to them. What was their example in standing firm? Notice verse 1. Therefore my beloved brethren. Whom I long to see my joy and crown. In this way. Stand firm. Well what way? The way that Paul had been describing that he stood firm. Go back to chapter 3 verse 12. Paul says not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead I press on toward the goal For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, in this way stand firm. In the way that I stand firm, you need to stand firm. How did Paul stand firm? The way he did it was by pressing on. It wasn't even standing still for Paul. It was pressing on toward the goal for the prize. And that's what every Christian needs to be doing. Pressing on. That's athletic language. That's the picture of this guy in a race. Racing with all of his might to be first to snap the tape. That's the spirit that we need to have as Christians. Going all out for God in our life. Let's resist the temptation to slow down. Take it easy. Just slide. What happens when you do that when you start sliding? And you know, it's sliding backwards. We call that backsliding. We want to be forward-moving, not backsliding. So Paul's exhortation is, "Stand firm in the way that I stand firm, and the way I do it is by pressing on toward the goal, for the prize. And so I want to leave you with some questions this morning to think about. The first one is, are you eagerly waiting for your Savior? Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus Christ the Lord? He's coming. We don't know when it's going to be. A lot of people tell you that they know when it's going to be. I can't tell you. I have no idea. Absolutely none. That's okay. I don't, I, it doesn't bother me a bit not to know. I just know He is going to come. Could be in my lifetime. Maybe not. But whatever way, I want to be ready when He comes. So are you eagerly waiting for your Savior? Number two, do you eagerly desire to experience a resurrected and glorified body when he comes? Do you long for the new heavens and the new earth in which there is no rebellion, no other will but the will of God, where you will seek to do the will of God with all of your might every time, every day, every second? That will be your experience. Three, if all that is true, then I just... Exhort you this morning to stand firm in your faith. Do not let persecution or false teaching or Satan cause you to give ground. Don't let, it, don't let it happen. You don't have to let it happen. Resist in the evil day. Stand firm in the evil day. That's what the church is here for. We're here to help one another stand firm. If you find yourself rocking and moving, and and you're afraid you're going to go backwards, then let somebody else know in the church that can huddle around you, and can pray for you, and lift you up, and exhort you, and speak the word of God to you. That's why we're here. We're here to help each other on the way to heaven. If we're a real church, this is what we'll be doing. And we need, I, I, think, I think it was Debbie in one of her... Um, text this last week was saying something along those lines we need to be open enough and vulnerable enough to share with each other when we find ourselves starting to move back I thank God that I know some of you do that you, you've shared things with me and that I, I'm so thankful for that because it helps you to know how to pray so let's, let's be a church that cares for each other And holds one another accountable. And links arms with one another. And says you're not going back. I'm not letting you. (laughs) You're not going. I've got my arm around you. You're not going anywhere. Right? Let's pray. Lord may we be that church of Jesus Christ. That he's called us to be. To love each other. And to hold each other in place. So that we don't fall back. That if someone falls back. It's going to be over our dead bodies. We're we're, we're standing with them. Increase our love, Lord. Increase our devotion, not only to you, but also to each other. Fill our minds, Lord, with the glory of your second coming. May the promises of your coming be like that giant magnet just drawing us ever towards you. Increase the work of your spirit in our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.